Uh, welcome to the Middle East Forum Speaker Webinar Series. I'm Stacy McKenna and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Dr. Jonathan Spire join us to discuss Syria, Crossroads of Conflict. Dr. Spire will speak for roughly five to 10 minutes then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen. We will do our best to get to all questions, but we have many participants on the call today. So I apologize in advance if we do not get to yours today. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Dr. Jonathan Spire. Thank you very much. I uh, hope you can hear me okay. If you can't, then just indicate. Um, so briefly with regard to Syria, what I wanna do is, is ask the following question really. Is the Syrian conflict now over? And is Syria on the way towards a return to the status quo ante bellum, so to speak, the, the situation prior to the outbreak of the war uh, in March uh, 2011? First of all, let's remember, we're talking not about one conflict that may have ended, but about two. The uh, original conflict began in March 2011 between the uh, Assad regime and the rebellion, the Sunni Arab rebellion raised against it gave birth, in a sense, to a second conflict. That conflict, of course, is the conflict between the global coalition led by the United States and the Islamic State organization. First key point to understand, yes, as conventional conflicts, both those wars have effectively come to an end. The global coalition war against ISIS came to an end, of course, in the latter part of 2018 with the fall of Bahuz, was the last place in the lower Euphrates River Valley. And the Regime rebel war doesn't have a single sort of Iwo Jima type moment, so to speak, of its ending. But effectively, we can say today, there is no longer an independent uh, insurgency in motion, in action against the Assad regime. So in this sense, the wars in Syria have come to a close. What remains of Syria, or what is the situation in Syria as these conventional conflicts have now drawn to a close? The answer is that it's not, it's absolutely not that the Assad regime has reasserted the status quo ante bellum, on the contrary. So what then is the reality we are looking at? Syria today, first and most, and most important to understand, remains divided. It remains divided into three entities, which I would argue in many ways resemble one another. And those three entities are, of course, the Assad regime itself, which today controls something like 65% or so of the territory of Syria the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces, Kurdish-led U.S. aligned, who control around 25% of the country, east of the Euphrates, uh, and then the remaining 10% controlled today effectively by the Republic of Turkey. And this Turkish-led enclave in the northwest of the country is the place where you find the remnants of what was once the Sunni Arab rebellion against Assad. So we have three entities, Assad's, Assad's Syria, Kurdish US aligned Syria, and Turkish uh, Islamist uh, Syria. In all three cases, uh, the local power there can only survive because of the support of its outside patrons. Turkey in the case of the Sunni Islamist remnant, the United States in the case of course of the Kurdish enclave, and crucially, Russia and Iran in the case of Assad. That is to say, it's not that Assad has won his war. It's that Assad chose, I guess, wisely from his point of view in terms of his allies, and Russia and Iran have won his war for him, and they today are the dominant powers in the 65% of the country that he controls. 
Now, given that that is the case, given that is to say, the, the main practical result of the Syrian war has been the breaching of Syria's borders and the entry into Syria of a whole variety of outside players, it is not surprising to note the following crucial point, which is that what's existing in Syria today is not peace, but rather that the two wars generated by Syria have ended, and what's taking place today is competition and conflict between a whole variety of outside players who have brought their conflicts onto Syrian soil. So in the final part of this initial uh, address, I'd like to kind of go through what are these new conflicts, or not necessarily new, but new for Syria, conflicts that are now being played out on Syrian soil. And I would say there are five conflicts that we need to note. Firstly, the conflict between the Republic of Turkey and the Kurdish Workers' Party, or PKK, which has come onto Syrian soil as a result of the Syrian Kurds and effectively the Syrian franchise of PKK uh, establishing an enclave of its rule in north of the country and then being faced with ongoing Turkish attempts to destroy that entity. And the Turks have now launched three conventional uh, incursions beginning in 2016 and the most recent one at the end of last year, beginning of this year, onto Syrian soil. So an ongoing Turks versus PKK conflict, conflict number one. Conflict number two, Turks versus the Assad regime. Turkey, as we said, now controls part of northwest Syria. Assad is keen to get that back. So there's an ongoing conflict between Assad regime backed by Russia and Turkey. And that, of course, erupted into open conflict in the early part of this year, ending on March the 5th with the uh, ceasefire between Russia and Turkey. Thirdly, third conflict or contest, maybe better for this one, the United States uh, against Russia. Both the US and Russia now have their own kind of separate enclaves of control in Syria. Those enclaves face one another along the Euphrates. And there is an ongoing day by day tension between Russian United States forces and Russian and United States interests on the soil of Syria. Fourth, well, the ongoing battle between the United States and its allies and ISIS. ISIS may have been destroyed as an entity controlling territory, but it remains very much as an ongoing Sunni Arab insurgency, pretty much taking in the same areas of control that it once had. It no longer controls those, those areas, but it has money, it has uh, networks of supply, it has weaponry and it has uh, fighters in that area still who are doing their best to keep the fight going. So the ongoing campaign of ISIS. And lastly, and by no means least, uh, of course, the ongoing uh, contest, the conflict between Israel and Islamic Republic of Iran being played out in Syria and saw as recently in its latest move as at 5 a.m. this morning, we learned from the global and regional media, when Israeli aircraft probably flying over Lebanon at the time, hit at Syrian targets uh, in the area of uh, Damascus in the Sit Zainab uh, area and the Al-Kiswa area. Apparently seven people were killed, we're hearing according to regional media reports. So the ongoing attempt by Iran to uh, lay down an area of control in Syria and to supply its Lebanese Hezbollah clients with accurate, with means to make their weapons, their rockets and missiles more accurate. And conversely, Israel's attempt ongoing to frustrate that uh, effort and to uh, expel uh, Islamic Republic Iran from, of Iran from Syria. That's the stated goal uh, of Israeli policy, reiterated most recently by Defense Minister Naftali Bennett just a couple of, uh, of days ago. So five new conflicts uh, underway 
on the soil of Syria, none of them anywhere close to conclusion. The central Syrian government of Bashar al-Assad, nowhere close to reasserting uh, the unquestioned authority which Bashar al-Assad uh, received and was bequeathed to him by his father, Hafez Assad, when he came to power on his father's death uh, in 2000. So a long, long way away from that. We're nowhere close to a reassertion of that tightly controlled, centralized, dictatorial Syrian state that we grew up studying and that we knew so well until March 2011. And what's taken its place, and on this I'll conclude just to reiterate my main point here, what's taken its place is that Syria today, uh, as I've said many times, as those who are familiar with my work will know, uh, has become effectively a geographical expression rather than a state. Inside that geographical area, what we're seeing played out are a whole variety of uh, power plays, contests, conflicts, and wars. And it would seem to me, at least, that certainly for the immediate to medium future, and beyond that, I'm probably not prepared to try to predict, but from the immediate to medium future, that is going to be the reality of Syria. Uh, it's vital for us to remember that when we're thinking about our policy discussions as Israelis and as uh, Americans, when we think about the ways to best advance the interests of our own countries uh, in that environment, to understand the nature of the environment we're dealing with no longer a state, not a state that's returning, not a regime that's returning, but rather a broken, fragmented space in which a whole variety of interests are playing out and are uh, clashing with one another. Um, I think that's about 10 minutes, so on that I'll, uh, I'll be happy to stop and to take uh, questions that anybody has. Thank you so much. We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one is, what are your thoughts on Israel's strategy to remove Iran from Syria? Yeah, uh, look, I write about this and I try my best to look at this in some detail. And I would differentiate between what I would call very considerable tactical successes on Israel's part and uh, strategic question marks that remain. That is to say, Israel has done very well up to and including, we, it looks like five o'clock this morning, at hitting at and damaging and degrading and limiting uh, the ongoing, clearly ongoing Iranian effort. And that's good when it comes to intelligence, when it comes to air power, you won't be surprised to hear that in the Israeli case, it tends to be good and it is good and it gets results. Uh, the problem comes in with the stated goal. The stated goal, as I mentioned before, stated many times by both Bennett and Lieberman and Netanyahu and others, is that via Israeli action, Iran should be compelled to leave Syria in its entirety. I don't see how you do that by air power alone. It doesn't matter how good the air power is. It's the nature of air power. It's a very hard thing to achieve. It reminds me of World War II, you know, back in the days of World War II, the great sort of barons of air power in both. UK and the United States would say, we can win the war from the air alone. Both countries have you know, powerful air forces, but you couldn't win that war just from the air. And I also don't believe you can achieve the complete departure of Iran from Syria by the usage of air power alone. So I think there's a, 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 what's the word, a discrepancy between the stated goal and the means uh, currently being pursued to obtain it. But having said that, the, gain, the tactical gains on the ground, nevertheless, are extremely impressive and continue to be so. And I assume will continue. Thank you. Regarding Russia and Iran, will Russia act against Iran to assert its presence? To what extent of the impact, uh, to what extent, extent is Iran calling the shots in Syria? Right, so a fascinating question. Um, will 
Russia and Iran uh, clash, or will they, will they compete with regard to control of uh, the, first of all, let's again reiterate, regarding the area of Syria that Assad controls, right? We're only talking about around 65% of the country, about 70, 75% of the population. But outside of those, that area, of course, neither Russia nor Iran get to decide anything, not in the Turkish area, certainly not in the East Euphrates where the US is located. Within that area, will they uh, clash? They will compete, and indeed they are competing, and they are competing for the uh, economic spoils, and we're seeing this on a day-to-day -day basis. So that's to say both Russia and Iran you know, want in on the uh, economic uh, wealth, mineral wealth, the potash, the, uh, the access to the sea, and, and the other you know, uh, uh, natural resources of Syria, and neither thinks that the other should be entitled to that. So there's an ongoing competition, and indeed quite a lot of discontent in both countries at the fact that neither country thinks it's getting its fair uh, share. Assad's very clever, of course, at playing one side off against the other and maintaining kind of okay relations with both. But there is a natural competition between Iran and Syria, excuse me, Iran and Russia uh, in Syria, and that will certainly continue. Having said that, if there are any if there's anybody who still believes, as some people in our country here in Israel uh, did believe uh, a shorter time ago, as a couple of years ago, back in the summer of 2018, when Assad was reiterating his uh, control of the border uh, east of the Golan, if there's anybody who still believes that we'll be able to leverage our relationship with Russia in order to secure the complete departure of Iran from Syria, I think that person is... Uh, is misunderstanding the picture. Yes, we will be able to leverage our relatively good, relatively cordial relations with Russia in order to apparently uh, to continue to carve out a space of freedom of activity for ourselves against the Iranian effort in uh, Syria. That's to say, when we hit the Iranians, up until now at least, and long may it continue, we'll find that the S-300 Russian-controlled S-300 batteries in Khamenei Air Base Base, don't get mobilized against our aircraft, and that's good. But if we think we'll be able to kind of extend that logic to a point where Russia will say, right, in the interests of Israel or in the interests of whatever else, we're going to kind of now push and press for a complete Iranian departure from Syria. Uh, let me just conclude on two points in this regard. One, I don't think the Russians will do it. They'll say from their point of view, hey, well, no, Iran helped us uh, preserve Assad. They're kind of our strategic ally here. We don't see why we should do that. And secondly, even if for some reason Russia did decide it wanted to try to uh, push for that goal, it's very questionable as to whether Russia would have the ability to insist on that. The Russian intervention into Syria has been very successful, but it's been notable by the lightness of its footprint on the ground. Right? The Russians don't have a great deal to insist on on the ground in Syria. It is Iran that has provided the militia cannon fodder, if I can put it that way. And in the case of Lebanese Hezbollah, fighters who are not merely cannon fodder, but who are pretty capable uh, people in their, in their line of work, uh, it's Iran that's provided all that manpower. Russia wouldn't be able to just click its fingers and tell the Iranians to leave. So yes, we can utilize our relatively cordial, relatively cordial relations with, with Putin to carve out a space to act against uh, Iran. No, we can't just get Putin to push the Iranians out. That's not going to Thank you. What might be the impact if COVID-19 seriously affects Syrians as it already has in Turkey and Iran? 
Well, it probably uh, is affecting uh, Syrians, but the problem is we don't have reliable data uh, to, uh, to really know. There is uh, an ongoing lockdown in Syria, uh, by the way, in the government-controlled areas. There, is, uh, there are demands or requests by the Syrians for increased, uh, increased finance for medical aid by the World Health Organization, which has been granted, by the way, and the United States also didn't oppose that, you know, because obviously this is a basic health emergency. Uh, going on. So COVID-19 clearly exists inside Syria. To the extent that it exists, uh, we can't know for certain. Um, with regard to what effect it would have, I would say that the most worrying area, if the disease were to really, so to speak, begin to proliferate uh, among the Syrian population, the most worrying area is the uh, Turkish or Islamist controlled area in the northwest, because that is an area almost entirely lacking in health infrastructure of any kind. Right. Unfortunately, the Assad regime probably, I think, leads the world, and this is even, there are even figures for it, leads the world in uh, its attacks on civilian health infrastructure. The Assad regime has basically set about destroying whatever health infrastructure existed in northern Syria in the last eight years when that was under rebel control and the rebels had no air options. Right? Assad just hit hospitals and health facilities deliberately. I personally witnessed this when I was reporting in Aleppo in the summer of 2012. The result is there's no health infrastructure there. There are around 3 million people packed into that area because that's where everybody who was with the rebellion, who didn't want to reconcile with the regime kind of fled to. And so there's just nothing there in terms of health infrastructure, very little there in terms of governance. Even. So if COVID-19 were to get going there, you know, it could really cut a swathe through that, that desperate and desperately poor uh, population. And most people who look at Syria and look at this the disease are most concerned about that area. You know, east of the Euphrates, the Americans are there, the Kurds are there, there is strong governance, there will be ways to get stuff in even if the regime didn't want it. For the regime, we know what's going on. World Health Organization and international organizations cooperate with the regime because it's kind of the existing government of Syria. The most worrying area is the Northwest. Right now, there's no indication that it's, uh, it's uh, really, you know, breaking out there, but if it did, that could be very, very worrying indeed in terms of the, uh, the rise of those people. Wonderful, thank you. We have two questions left, or time for two questions. Uh, how active is the United States and the United Nations in Syria right now? The United States or the United Nations? Both. We got questions okay. on both. Okay, fine. Uh, well, first of all, with regard to the United Nations, I mean, you maybe will not be surprised to hear that the United Nations in Syria, as elsewhere in the world, has proven to be, you know, astonishingly ineffective and basically invisible in the course of the Syrian war. It remains a problematic point, or problematic at least from my point of view, and I think maybe others, that the UN continues to regard Assad, and has continued throughout the war to regard Assad as the legitimate or existing legal government of Syria, with the result that insofar as UN agencies have operated in Syria, they've operated on the government side or the regime side, that is to say in humanitarian terms, they've tended to operate precisely in the areas where they are least needed and in the areas where they have been most needed, specifically the rebel-controlled areas, the Kurdish areas less, but specifically the rebel-controlled areas, very sparsely governed space for much of the last years, they just haven't been there. And unfortunately, the uh, humanitarian agencies that have taken their place have often come in via Turkey and, often, and have often been Islamist uh, uh, agencies, the famous IHH, the people who put together, if people remember the Mavi Marmara, who was Gaza back in 2009. IHH has been very, very active indeed in humanitarian uh, relief in the uh, north of Syria in the complete absence of the UN. 
with regard to the United States, look, the United States is still there east of the Euphrates and still controls, together with its Kurdish allies, is the, is the de facto governing force in that area. There are, of course, as we know, President Trump has on two occasions now ordered the withdrawal of US forces, but on both occasions, he's kind of partly walked that decision back, subsequent to it being made. And there are still hundreds, we don't know exactly how many, but hundreds of US forces on the ground inside Syria. And we've, we're hearing in recent days of the US actually beefing up its forces around the oil fields. The president obviously talked specifically about the, uh, the desire to control the oil east of the Euphrates, and that's something which is an ongoing reality. So the sense is that America's not leaving east of the Euphrates in its entirety anytime soon. There is, of course, also the Tanif base in the southwest of the country, which controls the very vital M2, which sort of, sort of uh, prevents the Iranians from controlling and having a clear way through on the vital uh, uh, east-west M2 highway that leads in the direction of Lebanon and the Mediterranean Sea. So the Americans are still strategic players inside Syria. And uh, certainly from my point of view, and I think that of many others, there's, there's a hope that that will remain so because the US is playing a vital role course in fighting ISIS we know but also crucially in terms of blocking the Iranian domination and the Iranian advance westwards in the direction of Lebanon the Mediterranean Sea and of course the Kunetra crossing and the Golan Heights and Israel borders. Thank you so much and our last question for this webinar what do you think Syria will look like in five years and is there any chance for a Kurdish state? Okay, well, with regard to five years, as, as I kind of hinted at, I mean, I, I'm hesitant with regard with predictions, but you've asked, so let me have a go. I think it's most likely that Syria will still be fragmented, confused, and divided one way or another five years from now. If it's not, i.e. if Assad, one way or another, does get to put his flag all the way across the territory of the country five years from now, even then, I think it won't be like it was before, because then Iran and Russia will remain the key uh, addresses with regard to Syrian power, not the presidential palace in Damascus. So one way or another, I think the power of the Assad family has been very drastically curtailed and isn't coming back. Most likely, I think, the country will still be de facto divided, but Assad, as I said, even if he puts his flag all over the country, will still be beholden to both Tehran and Moscow. I think. With regard to Kurdish state, frankly, no, there's not any chance on the immediate or even, you know, medium horizon for Kurdish statehood inside Syria. But I do hope very much that the currently existing de facto Kurdish entity and self-governing entity east of the Euphrates uh, can and will get to survive one way or another, as was the case with regard to the now flourishing Kurdish regional government in northern Iraq. It, much of whether that will happen or not will depend on the West. So that is to say, in the same way that Iraqi Kurdistan and its success developed under the guarding wing, so to speak, of American and British aircraft in the 1990s. So the Kurdish enclave east of the Euphrates will continue for just as long as, and frankly, no longer than the United States chooses to guarantee its continued existence with some military presence east of the Euphrates. It could be a couple of hundred people, but as long as the Americans are there, no one's going to dare to stick a, a finger east of the Euphrates, so to speak. Once the Americans are gone, I'm afraid that Kurdish self-governing, relatively successful uh, self-governing entity will have its days uh, uh, rapidly numbered also. Dr. Spire, thank you so much for joining us again today. Most welcome. Thanks for inviting us. Of course. Unfortunately, we have come to the close of our webinar. A recording will be made 
will be made available on the Middle East Forum's YouTube channel in the next few days, along with all of our past webinars. Please join us on Wednesday for Israel Insider with Ashley Perry at 3 p.m. Eastern. On Friday, we will have Dr. Raymond Stock join us to discuss, is the Trump administration anti-Islamist? Thank you again for joining us, and I hope you have a wonderful day.